Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome to episode 116 of the Dangerous History Podcast. This episode will be the audio of my presentation on abolitionism and anarchism at the 2016 Midwest Peace and Liberty Conference up in Michigan. I think the presentation went well and was well received. And I really enjoyed myself at the event, despite the fact that I had horrible flight delays both going up to Michigan and coming back, and despite the fact that there was some really nasty rain Saturday for the first half of the day that then left it almost as muggy as Florida after the rain stopped. But despite all that, I still had a great time and was glad I went. It was great to meet some awesome new people and reconnect with some people that I'd previously met at Porkfest a few months ago. Just a great time. Enjoyed the outdoor cooksmanship of Luzanderfeen yet again. And despite the fact that I got in at the wee a.m. hours of the morning and have been just like dying of tiredness all day and went to work today, I still regret nothing and I'm glad I went. And big thanks, by the way, to Ole for helping me in getting there and having a place to stay. And with that, I present to you my presentation from the Midwest Peace and Liberty Festival, Abolitionism and Anarchism. I will be as harsh as truth and as uncompromising as justice. On this subject, I do not wish to think or speak or write with moderation. No, no. Tell a man whose house is on fire to give a moderate alarm? Tell him to moderately rescue his wife from the hands of the ravisher? Tell the mother to gradually extricate her babe from the fire into which it has fallen, but urge me not to use moderation in a cause like the present. I am in earnest. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single inch, and I will be heard. That's William Lloyd Garrison, founder of the New England Anti-Slavery Society, and later of the larger American Anti-Slavery Society, writing in the very first issue of his publication, The Liberator, on New Year's Day, 1831. And that is the voice of an extremist. 
Most mainstream historians criticize Garrison and his faction of the abolitionist movement, some of whom were even more radical than he was, for being too extreme, for not moderating, for not working more within the mainstream of the system. They contrast extremists with the more moderate, more political abolitionists, but a few historians have understood that what the extremists did was actually vital to eventually ending chattel slavery in the United States. And Garrison himself, though he was an extremist on his goals, was also, when it came to time frame and tactics, a realist. Just seven months after that quote I read you a minute ago, Garrison wrote this in the same publication. Urge immediate abolition. As earnestly as we may, it will, alas, be gradual abolition in the end. We have never said that slavery would be overthrown by a single blow. That it ought to be, we shall always contend. Elsewhere, Garrison's description of this same approach was summed up by the phrase, immediate emancipation gradually achieved. In a 1978 Libertarian Review article, Murray Rothbard quoted some of these same passages from Garrison and said that libertarians must be abolitionists and pointed out that those who advocate for gradualism as the goal confuse the principle with the strategy. That the goal should always be abolition, and if in practice that works itself out as gradualism, that's okay, but if gradualism is itself the goal, the ideal in principle, you're not going to accomplish anything significant. A movement which demands modest reforms not only won't accomplish much in reality, but is also likely to have its energy and its momentum totally the wind taken out of its sails if it achieves one of its little modest reform goals along the way. In the early 19th century, there were kind of multiple groups of Americans who thought that slavery was bad and at least in some far-off theoretical future needed to be maybe phased out or something. They were known as anti-slavery men, as distinct from abolitionists. Abolitionists wanted to end it as quickly as was realistically possible. Anti-slavery men a lot more kind of hazy about the whole thing. These anti-slavery men are very moderate beyond saying that slavery is immoral as an abstract proposition, criticizing its worst excesses and abuses, and trying with some mixed results to limit its expansion into new territories out west, they didn't really accomplish that much for decades of speaking out on it. For some reason, these sorts of anti-slavery men remind me of, I don't know, Milton Friedman, or maybe Gary Johnson, although these anti-slavery men of the 19th century were a bit more articulate. <laughs> then there was the so-called colonization movement. The colonization movement was centered around the formation of the American Colonization Society in 1816. They also criticized slavery as an abstract moral proposition. Among the ranks of the American Colonization Society, by the way, were many Southerners, including slave owners, like Henry Clay. They believed that freed blacks simply could not and should not 
live side by side in the United States on conditions of equal rights with white citizens. And while they wanted slavery to be phased out, they also wanted black presence in the, in the United States to be phased out with it. So their solution was simply to ship freed slaves to Africa, despite the fact that most of these slaves by the 19th century had been residents of North America for five, six, or more generations. And uh, the, Africa would be about as much of a home to them as Belgium would be to me, and some of my heritage is from Belgium. And I promise you, if you airdrop me in the middle of Belgium and say, here, start a life for yourself, it's gonna be a pretty tough learning curve. Now imagine you're dropped on a desolate beach in West Africa with you know, a couple bags of beef jerky and told, good luck building a, a new civilization. And of course, very few free blacks in America actually wanted to go to what eventually became the colony of Liberia. And this was the quote-unquote solution presented by such mainstream, reasonable American politicians as Henry Clay, James Monroe, and later, of course, the great Abraham Lincoln. Now, later, real abolitionists would criticize this colonization movement as at best being a distraction from the real issue and at worst as really being a way to strengthen slavery by removing the free black population from the country because of course the free black population in the days of slavery was extremely dangerous because those who were still slaves could see them and see that they were free and see that you know it was possible and would be inspired to whatever, try and run away, try and revolt, whatever it might be. And for some reason, the colonization movement kind of makes me think of modern-day conservatives, in that whether they realize it or not, they're actually strengthening the institution that they say they want to in some way roll back. And then in 1831, along came William Lloyd Garrison, an absolute ball of fire, full of passion, launching a much more serious abolitionist movement and not as well known as that Garrison was inspired actually by free black abolitionists who had been publishing things for years, not only demanding immediate abolition of slavery on the basis of self-ownership and natural rights, but also vehemently opposing the colonization movement as being a solution that really wasn't much of a solution. Garrison brought a passion and immediacy to the issue and he, along with many other abolitionists, it wasn't just one guy, it was a movement, black and white, male and female, built this into a real radical movement. Garrison's activism, by the way, included famously burning a copy of the US Constitution because of the clauses in it that legitimized slavery. And also, prior to the not-so-civil war, Garrison advocated the North seceding from the Union as the solution to the moral problem of slavery. Not very mainstream thoughts. For some reason, people like Garrison remind me of today's extremists, people like us. Both abolitionism and individualist anarchism are built on the premise of self-ownership. This explains why Lysander Spooner was both an individualist anarchist and a radical abolitionist. Perhaps less well-known is that in 1838, William Lloyd Garrison presided over the creation of a radical 
anarchist pacifist group called the New England Non-Resistant Society. The New England Non-Resistant Society was a group that extended the arguments for abolishing chattel slavery to rejecting all earthly government as well as all social hierarchical distinctions based on things like race and gender. Many in this group were even more radical than Garrison himself. One member of this group was a man named Bronson Alcott who once wrote in the publication The Non-Resistant, I look upon the non-resistant society as an assertion of the right of self-government. Why should I employ a church to write my creed or a state to govern me? Why not write my own creed? Why not govern myself? All the way back in the 1830s and 40s, there were people in America saying these type of things, and not just Lysander Spooner, much as we love him. Basically, the non-resistants, as they were known back then, were Christian anarchists, though they did not use the term anarchist, but that's what they were. By the way, years later, of all people, Tolstoy recognized this. Tolstoy himself, a Christian anarchist, recognized birds of a feather. Here's historian Lewis Perry, who is one of the few historians to really take seriously um, 19th century American anarchism and give it a fair shake and not just dismiss it as a bunch of cranks and extremists with nothing valuable to say. Lewis Perry writes on the anti-political beliefs of these non-resistances they call themselves. One obligation of non-resistance was not to vote. All civil government was at variance with the government of God. All civil governments assumed the right to harm anyone who resisted the legal processes. Although this assumption was so well understood that it seldom came out in the open. Human government without at least the threat of force and violence was unthinkable. As Edmund Quincy explained in the United States, the people were sovereign and by voting pretended to have the right to confer powers of coercion and life-taking on their representatives. Non-resistance could not join in this blasphemy. To vote in the United States was to make oneself accountable for violence that was constitutionally employed." End quote from Lewis Perry. Now this organization, the New England Non-Resistance Society, remained a separate distinct organization from the larger American Anti-Slavery Society, which officially was not committal. It was agnostic on the question of whether or not an abolitionist should vote. As, as an organization, the New England Anti-Slavery Society basically said, each individual has to do whatever their own conscience tells them is right as far as whether voting is or is not a good and valid and useful way to try and roll back slavery. Again though, the non-resistance and the other extreme abolitionists believe that if you took the implications of the abolitionist arguments against chattel slavery to their logical conclusions, then you would arrive at, again, they wouldn't have called it this, but we would recognize it as such, a form of anarchy. You would have to argue in favor of abolishing the state if you take these, ar these arguments to their logical conclusion because the state is based on the exact same coercion and domination of some men by others that you find in the relationship of a plantation owner and his chattels. So interestingly, some of the South's most important and articulate defenders of the peculiar institution defended slavery by pointing out kind of the inverse of the radical abolitionist argument. 
That is, some of these defenders of slavery said, hey, if you believe government is good and necessary, then you should be okay with slavery because it's based on the same principle. Here's the famous Southern writer and defender of slavery, George Fitzhugh, who wrote such books as Sociology for the South, or The Failure of Free Society, and also Cannibals All, or Slaves Without Masters. This is George Fitzhugh, quote, the best governed countries and those which have prospered the most have always been distinguished for the number and stringency of their laws. Side note, he must have, if he was around today, he'd be a big fan of North Korea, I would assume. Liberty, continuing with the words of George Fitzhugh, liberty is an evil which government is intended to correct. Some were born with saddles on their backs and others booted and spurred to ride them. And the riding does them good. They need the reins, the bit, and the spur. End quote. By the way, this is, these sorts of things are part of why, much as I do not like Lincoln in his war, I'm also not someone who roots for the Confederacy because I'm not willing to turn a blind eye to that kind of stuff or to the fact that the Confederacy also taxed people's incomes, conscripted people into their military, etc. Now, over time, even within the, Garrison, the Garrisonian abolitionist movement, there were rifts, there were divisions and, and factions that arose between abolitionists who were more, we might say, moderate or even conservative. Um, there was, you know, dispute between them and the more radicals, and there were disputes over, uh, you know, kind of mundane issues of the day, like what role should, wi should women have within the movement? Um, do we want to be radical on that, or do we want to kind of keep things traditional as far as that goes? Um, and other things like that, but there was a dispute that was much deeper than that, and that was the conservative or moderate abolitionists believed in the legitimacy and usefulness of the political process, whereas the radicals did not. The conservative abolitionists believed that the United States and its system and society were fundamentally good and sound, but that slavery was simply a really bad aberration. And if you could just fix this one bad aberration, everything would be pretty peachy. The radical abolitionists believed that slavery was just the most heinous and extreme and obvious example of the day of manifesting the problem of subjecting some men to the rule of others. And they believed that this actually characterized society in a whole bunch of ways. Now, conservative abolitionists viewed the U.S. Constitution as fundamentally sound, a good document that just needed either amendment or perhaps reinterpretation to eliminate the evil of chattel slavery, and then everything would be well. Radical abolitionists viewed the Constitution as an anti-liberty instrument, not only because it explicitly protected slavery, without using the word, even back then, politicians were addicted to euphemism, but they also opposed it because in the larger picture, they saw that it established a coercive state by which some men could force their will upon others. The moderate and conservative abolitionists, and to some degree Garrison himself, they decided to pin their hopes on the Republican Party by the late 1850s and to see if abolition could be brought about by force one way or another. Now the fact that the end of slavery in the United States did occur via the means of war with all the violence and destruction and coercion that that entails, all things that of course went against the principles of the most radical abolitionists, 
has led a lot of people in time since to kind of retroactively root more for the moderate and conservative abolitionists and to downplay, minimize, ignore, or ridicule the most radical abolitionists. But there have been a few people um, who, who have understood the vital role played by the most extreme abolitionists. And one of the few historians who's given them some respect and a fair shake for their contribution to bring about the end of chattel slavery is an historian named Eileen Crediter, who wrote the following in her book, Means and Ends in American Abolitionism, Garrison and His Critics on Strategy and Tactics. It follows from the abolitionist conception of his role in society that the goal for which he agitated was not likely to be immediately realizable. Its realization must follow conversion of an enormous number of people and the struggle must take place in the face of the hostility that inevitably met the agitator for an unpopular cause. The abolitionists knew as well as their later scholarly critics that immediate and unconditional emancipation could not occur for a long time. But unlike those critics, they were sure it would never come unless it were agitated for during the long period in which it was impracticable. To have dropped the demand for immediate emancipation because it was unrealizable at the time would have been to alter the nature of the change for which the abolitionists were agitating. That is, even those who would have gladly accepted gradual and conditional emancipation had to agitate for immediate and unconditional abolitionism of slavery because that demand was required by their goal of demonstrating to white Americans that Negroes were their brothers. Once the nation had been converted on that point, conditions and plans might have been made. Their refusal to water down their visionary slogan was, in their eyes, eminently practical, much more so than the course of the anti-slavery senators and congressmen who often wrote letters to abolitionist leaders justifying their adaptation of anti-slavery demands to what was attainable, end quote. Now, to militantly oppose chattel slavery and to urge its quick and complete abolition and to advocate for blacks to have equal rights in antebellum America, to take those positions at that time in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, that took genuine courage, even in the North. The vast majority of people in America at the time, North as well as South, thought you were not only wrong, but dangerous if you took the position of radical abolitionism. Only about 1% of Northerners were members of abolitionist societies. And they faced serious violence, not just from Southerners, they faced serious violence from Northerners as well. For example, in 1834, an anti-abolitionist riot in New York City targeted, among other things, abolitionist-oriented churches, black neighborhoods, and homes of prominent supporters of the abolitionist cause, such as businessman Lewis Tappan. In Boston in 1835, William Lloyd Garrison himself was almost lynched by an anti-abolitionist mob. In Boston, not in Charleston, not in New Orleans, not in Richmond, in Boston. And in Alton, Illinois, land of Lincoln, so I'm told, in 1837, Elijah Lovejoy, an abolitionist minister and editor, was lynched by an angry mob. So 
It was an unpopular thing to take that position. It was literally physically dangerous to many who took that position. And yet look at their cause and the verdict of history. You'd be very hard-pressed to find many people other than maybe the most you know, fringiest parts of the alt-right who would not retroactively side with the abolitionists on that question in history. Not a lot of people walking around today making the George Fitzhugh uh, argument, at least not explicitly. But at the time, the people who were making the argument that now virtually, quote-unquote, everybody sees as the right side of the issue were considered dangerous, crazy troublemakers. So I would say that to be an anarchist today is not only just an extension of the basis of self-ownership by which the abolitionists opposed slavery, just carrying that premise to its conclusions, but in many ways it's similar to what it was like to be an abolitionist in the antebellum period. Now, I'm not saying it's identical. Thankfully, most of the time it's not nearly as physically dangerous, although on occasion it might be, but in general it's, it's not. No angry mobs are showing up here to, you know, give us all the pitchfork. But to be a principled opponent of coercion and domination today is, as I'm sure all of you know as well, to be seen as, at best, an eccentric weirdo. And at worst, a dangerous, destructive zealot who wants to destroy the very foundation of human civilization. Today, of course, even though many mainstream historians still criticize some of their tactics, like I said before, virtually everyone now acknowledges without question that the radical, troublemaker, unpopular, hated, extremist abolitionists were absolutely on the right side of history and on the right side of that issue. And so the last thing I'll leave you with is what will future historians and future people thinking about the past look back on and think of us today? What will they think about you? What will they think about me? Will, as uh, to paraphrase Fidel Castro, will history vindicate us? I'd like to think so, but I guess only time will tell. Thank you. Anybody, any questions? If you don't, I'll make some up and answer them myself. So, Why are you so handsome? Well, funny you should ask. <laughs> Why are you so handsome? Funny you should ask. <laughs> so what about the um, opposite? Will, will history bury us and turn us into terrorists and arrest us and stomp us out? It is possible. It is possible. I don't, I don't claim to have a crystal ball to know exactly how it will go. Um, it's certainly, I, I think, an open question, and it's what, um, oh, who, who was it? Who first, I mean, Rothbard quoted it a lot, but he didn't come up with it. Uh, I think it was maybe Benjamin Tucker, one of, the, one of those sort of guys, maybe, um, who, who said that basically history is a race between society and the state. And, you know, they kind of, one gets ahead of the other for a little while and the other one catches up and kind of goes back and forth and there's little bits where, where um, human freedom is making advancements and then it gets kind of, and, and technology plays a very interesting role in that because, of course, it's a double-edged sword that simultaneously empowers us and, and empowers the state too. So, yeah, it's a race. And uh, I'm not a betting man. 
On the other hand, I, I do have a horse in the race, so to speak. So, you know, trying to, in, in, in my own little way, uh, with what I'm able to do to, um, you know, nudge, nudge my horse a little bit. But, uh, you know, I think, I think that's what we're all doing in our own sphere. But, yeah. Don't know. It's possible. There are lots of good people who get steamrolled, wiped out, and then either expunged from the record or, yeah, like you said, vilified and whatever. I hope not, though. Have you got any suggestions to um, make the bridge between those very courageous people and who opposed slavery and make that a real connection for other people, for us now when we want to talk about the regulatory state and its stranglehold on us? Well, I mean, other than, other than educating people on, on the the full story and the details of what really went on and, and thereby kind of giving them some more, more of a real picture of what, what was really going on and who was really saying what. Because there, there's something similar to um, my, my most recent podcast episode. I was talking about the, the so-called old right who were kind of the much more libertarian right wing that, that were standard from about the 1930s until about the mid-50s when when William F. Buckley, CIA Skull and Bones guy came in and screwed it all up. Um, and the old right has, for the most part, other than you know a handful of books here and there in my little podcast episode, has mostly been just flushed down the memory hole. And so I think it's a useful function to bring these people up and try and, try and share with people that, look, there were people back at the start of the Cold War who were saying, we're going down the path of empire and a garrison state, and yeah, we don't like communism either, but if we go down this path to try and resist communists, uh, we're going to end up as totalitarian as they are. And by the way, William F. Buckley was saying, yes, we will, and that's good. Um, but I, I think by, by bringing the past back and giving people the full picture, and one of the things I try to do w with my podcast is to put the spotlight on forgotten heroes from time to time, on people who are just left out of the story and share what they said so that you can, you can point out, yeah, there were people who were speaking out against the national security state in 1947. Um, they lost the political battle at the time, but at least somebody was speaking truth to power and doing the best they could from the position they were in. And the same thing with abolitionists back then, that not only was not everybody on board with slavery, but there were even lots of people who understood the deeper implications of why slavery is wrong and then what does that imply for the rest of our, our society and our institutions. So yeah, I mean the best thing I can think of is, is simply just trying to, um, in, in that way, to make people aware of the full picture of the past, to bring it to life, to explicitly connect it to modern issues. Um, and then, then beyond that, I, I guess at the end of the day it's up to them. Not the most satisfying answer, I suppose, but it's, it's, it's what I got right now. What, uh, what are your thoughts about tying uh, the word abolitionist, uh, like many people do, to the, the anarchy voluntarist movement? It's, uh, you know, they co-opted the word anarchy, you yeah. know, 100 years ago and made it into... <laughs> somebody just the other day asked me, you're not one of those angry anarchists, you know, bombing people and stuff. It's like, no, it's nothing like that, you know, we kind of tend to refer to ourselves as voluntarists, and many people refer to themselves as abolitionists, yeah. which is a pretty hard word to co-opt. What, what are your thoughts on what type of word, you know, which is really important, the 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I always have mixed feelings about these sorts of things because on the one hand, when someone steals your word and hijacks it, there's a sense of like, I want my word back. On the other hand, at a certain point, the marketplace of human speech, if a word gets co-opted into something else, at a certain point when like virtually everybody now uses the new word, I don't think it's worth wasting the trouble of trying to reclaim a word that everybody has long since repurposed. Um, this is why, you know, I'm, I'm, people are like, oh, I'm a liberal, but in the classical sense, like, I understand what you mean, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to that point of view, but, th but you're not going to do yourself any marketing uh, favors by trying to steal back a word that's long since been hijacked and cemented in stone what it means now. Um, as far as abolitionist goes, I, I understand why people use it. Uh, I, 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 I sympathize with the reason behind it. Um, I certainly have great respect for Bill Bupert, who refers to himself that way over at zerogov.com. And um, you know, he, he's perhaps more confrontational in tactic than I am, where he, he tells someone he's an abolitionist, and if they ask him more about it, and then he responds by saying, well, you know, which types of slavery do you still support? Um, which, you know, I totally get, and I, I can understand how that, that would be a useful way to kind of break through people's defenses a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really have any solid opinions one way or another. Honestly, I, I have similar feelings, uh, similar mixed feelings about the word capitalism because most people, when they say capitalism, they mean mercantilist, fascist economics that we have. When they say capitalism, they mean the existing system. And that's not actually that recent. You can actually go back a few hundred years and find political scientists and, ec and economists and people saying capitalism and meaning a, a mercantilist, corporatist state. So I have mixed feelings. I mean, you know, if, if by capitalism you mean the free market in the true sense, then I'm all for it. But I have mixed feelings about, about hanging on to that word or not. Because if capitalism means bailing out Wall Street and farm subsidies and all that, then I'm not a fan. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. These, these things of what words mean are always tricky. If you're a slick sociopathic politician, you can make some, some great political hay out of that. What's your opinion, and how do you feel about voting? I try to avoid it, and have been on a, on a successful streak for quite a long time. And unlike many other vices that I have quit over the years, I don't feel particularly tempted by it. So it's actually, it's one of the easiest vices to quit cold turkey, I found. So, um, yeah. Don't have a whole, whole lot else to, to add to that. I mean, I, I see it as kind of... Sort of the equivalent of saying, yeah, let's you know, maybe phase out slavery and then ship them all to Liberia kind of thing. It's not, not really getting at the root. It's not striking at the root. <laughs> yeah, it's watering the root. Anyone else? Yeah, so on the topic of bridging the gap uh, of today, I was just uh, thinking, what do you think was the main cause of that the bridge was closed more back in the day? of the abolitionists, you know? Do you have an idea of what made them go from being considered to be radical and, uh, you know, extremists to actually, that, that was the policy that was, um, yeah, was used? Uh, you mean as to, in, in the United States, why, how, how slavery did get, in fact, abolished? Yeah, basically, yeah. What, what, do you know what actually bridged that gap? Uh, that was between what was considered extremism 
two, suddenly it was uh, basically became reality. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a really complicated and, and roundabout connection, I, I think, in a lot of ways, because it wasn't like Congress and the president and whoever else were reading the arguments of the uh, New England Non-Resistance Society and were saying, yeah, they, they have a good point. Um, whole slavery thing's wrong, and that's what we need to do. I mean, the, the reason it, it went away was because of this um, chaotic train of events that happened when the South seceded and the Union decided to try to use force to hold them back in, and then as the war went on, um, for a variety of reasons, a war that initially was supposed to be, as Lincoln himself insisted repeatedly in the first two years of the war, a war that was just about whether or not the South would keep paying taxes to D.C. and all that, um, then became a war of, of liberation. And I think, I think in part it's opportunism on the part of the abolitionists that they saw the way the war was going. Some of them were you know, supporters of the Union war effort. Some of them were not. The more principled, pacifist, abol uh, uh, anarchist abolitionists didn't support the Union war effort. Um, sort of his own thing, but many of you may know Lysander Spooner, who was a, a very radical abolitionist, uh, also vehemently opposed Lincoln's war. But I think some of them, uh, uh, as the war went on, were able to pressure and kind of, it's, I know it's kind of a cliche now, but the the Overton window kind of a thing where they moved the, the center of where the, the debate was. Um, and, and I think it's tragic on, on a lot of levels that slavery went away the way it did because basically it went away, it went away the way that the conservative, more pro-state abolitionists wanted it to go away, which was um, you know, through, through state power. And you know, that as the positive of slavery goes away, which you know, virtually nobody today is shedding any tears over, uh, but then it has all the negative side effects of, of uh, destruction, death, increased centralization of state power uh, as a side effect of the war and all these other sorts of things. Probably why um, Jeffrey Hummel entitled his uh, great book on, on that war, which I think is the best single book on that war, Emancipating Slaves, Enslaving Free Men. Right. So, yeah. I could just add that um, another side effect of that is um for the better part of a century, it's also increased people's faith in the state. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Everybody only sees that, that the state abolished slavery and they forget that, like, yeah. We <laughs> yeah. Well they, well, they see the state abolishing slavery and they ignore the fact that it was the state that was enforcing slavery, that was socializing the costs of enslavement onto the taxpayer at large and all that for all those years. Um, and that it was, you know, the British state that was heavily involved in bringing the slaves over in the first place and all that. So, yeah, they get all the credit. Same thing, you know, the state passes segregation laws and forces them vigorously for a century. And then when the state finally gets rid of those, like, it gets all the credit as, a, as an institution. And none of the, oh, what about, you know, the last hundred years where you were beating people over it and whatever. Um, yeah. Have you seen other people like uh, Lysander Spooner who, who was... Uh very consistent in his uh, philosophy and his thoughts, but seemed to take two opposite sides on slavery and supporting the South, sort of. Have you seen any other people that can have been played that off? With, and um, did that work for him at all? Or? There, there, were, there are none that I'm familiar with from the time period. Uh, they may exist, and maybe I've just never come across them. Uh, but yeah, Lysander Spooner was, was against uh, coercion and aggression and domination across the board, and so 
when it was just the issue of the slaves being freed, he actually went beyond what a lot of the, the non-resistant type people wanted to do. Uh, Lysander Spooner supported violent slave uprisings. And he considered that a legitimate case of you know, slaves trying to achieve their, their freedom and their rights. And I think it is revealing that someone who was that radical, who was out there like in John Brown territory on that issue, then once the war happened and the Union started doing what it was doing uh, in, in the cause of the war, then rejected Lincoln in the war effort. Um, and I think that was in Lysander Spooner's own, own development. That was a big part in his, uh, after the war, writing the, the No Treason, the Constitution of No Authority, which we all know and love. Um, because if you go back before that war, Lysander Spooner was writing things mostly pretty favorable to the Constitution. Actually, he made, and I, I think it's kind of silly and wishful thinking, but before the Civil War, he made an argument that if you just interpret the Constitution in its plain meaning in a certain way, it would actually cause you to have to abolish slavery as being unconstitutional, which to, to me, that's a lawyerly bridge too far. With regard to the, the topic of our potential for historical vindication, right, um, I think one of the things we need to consider, too, is history has, as they say, always been written by the winners. They had the scribes, they had the schools, they had the books. They were the only source of, of information. But that's not the case now. I, I think, Good point. based on the technology now, our chances have improved exponentially because I can talk to anybody anywhere in the world forever. Um, I can write something and everybody can see it for free instantly. Oh yeah, I, I can speak Russian into my phone. It, you know, it's it's. I think that has to be considered. It's not something that we can really have a template for uh, from the past because sure. we've never had that capability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's a good point to bring up, and that is one of the things that does give me hope when I'm feeling optimistic that these sorts of capabilities have never existed before. I mean, back in 1831, if you wanted to start um, preaching a radical message, you basically had to buy a printing press. <laughs> and buy paper and ink and have you know people out there in your barn cranking away and print some cruddy little pamphlet and then you know what are you gonna do circulate it to your neighborhood uh, briefly when Lysander Spooner was operating his own private postal service you at least had someone who could deliver it across you know many states but uh, after that so yeah we have the opportunity I mean you know I'm a perfect example of this on a budget of almost nothing I built a history podcast that people listen to around the world. That's pretty cool. And, you know, a, a lot more people listen to my podcast every day than, you know, number of students that sit through a history class at, you know, a bunch of colleges put together. And, and there's also the big difference of um, this sort of information, this sort of alternative uh, whatever you want to call it, new media, other, other, other ways of communicating, it also has the benefit of, un unlike things like um, state schooling, it's voluntary. And so no one has to listen to or read these alternative sources of information because someone's making them. And as we all know, when you're choosing to learn something, you're going to really learn it because you're actually interested in, in it enough for whatever reason that, uh, that you want to you know, read some book, read some article, listen to some podcast. And so it has a much bigger impact even though um, it may not for the time being reach the numbers of people that you know, some 
the next PBS history documentary or whatever will. But on the other hand, it's going to reach people. Um, there's going to be more more quality rather than quantity. Um, and you know, I think that counts for something. Anything else? No. Thanks. If you liked what you heard in this podcast, there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist, to improve, and grow. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast in any way you can. Social media, online discussion boards, word of mouth, whatever. But to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it. Also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. And you can help the show financially several different ways. One of the best is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me if you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon so that I can verify you're a supporter and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.